This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's uh, go to the Lord for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this morning, for the opportunity and freedom to gather together in this nation. Father, we thank You for the election this last week, for the way it went. Father, we know that You are the God of history. No matter who had been elected, we know that Your uh, plan for history is being worked out. And Father, we can trust You uh, that no matter what the winds of change may bring, that you have known about these things from all eternity and that you have made a perfect provision for them. Father, now as we study your word today, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we read, the things that we study, that the Holy Spirit, as as the Holy Spirit makes these things real to us, that we would have the spiritual courage to respond and apply them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. If I seem distracted, it's that one of our deacons has decided he's bringing his beach chair to sit in upstairs, using the excuse, of course, of a bad back. Perhaps we'll just have to find somebody with a little anointing oil and pour it over his head to drown him in it. Okay. Revelation 2, verse 1. These are the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We have them up on the overhead. They are located on the western shore of what is modern Turkey in what was a Roman proconsular province. Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Each of these short epistles, almost postcards, focus on, at the core of these epistles, focus on that which is commendable in their spiritual life, with a couple of exceptions, And that which they need to work on, that which is a point of condemnation, they have failed in a couple of points, with one or two exceptions. As we look at the outline of this section, we see that it's comprised of seven sections. There is a commission, that is the opening address of each letter, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church in Smyrna, the angel of the church in Thyatira, the angel of the church of Pergamum, the angel of the church of Philadelphia, the angel of the church of Laodicea. Then there is a 
reference back to the person of Jesus Christ in light of certain of his attributes revealed in the vision John had back in chapter 1. And one of the epistles references a couple of things that were not mentioned in Revelation 1. So there's an integral connection between chapter 1 and chapter 2 and 3. And what we have pointed out over the last several weeks is that the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1 is a picture of the Lord as the priest judge, not our intercessor at the right hand of the Father, but a priest moving in judgment present time amongst the churches. This is reiterated in verse 1 of chapter 2. These things says he holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus Christ is pictured in terms of his present ministry as a high priest in judging and purifying the local church. And the reason he is doing that is to prepare us for our future roles as priest uh, judges during the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. Remember, according to 1 Corinthians 6, we will judge angels. Revelation chapter 21, we will serve as priests in the millennial kingdom. So there must be this preparation of purification, and that's the focus of these short epistles. They are designed as a critique sheet, an evaluation form. They're not like the epistles of the earlier part of the New Testament, Romans, uh, the epistles to the Corinthians, the epistles to the Thessalonians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians. These were designed usually to address certain problems or to... Uh, expound doctrine, and to show the application of that doctrine. These short epistles uh, zero in on positive traits in each congregation and negative traits. They are, uh, in essence, corporate analyses. They are not individual analyses because we know that in some congregations there are those that are advancing to spiritual maturity, There are others who are trying to make up their mind, and there are others who are just there because their friends, their family, someone expects them to be there, and they're just basic chair warmers or pew warmers on Sunday morning. But these epistles address the collective attributes of each congregation, that we have a corporate witness within the angelic conflict to the grace of God and to the sufficiency of his grace and the sufficiency of his uh, provision. So there, the, each epistle begins with a commission, a character reference back to the Lord Jesus Christ in light of his role as priest judge. There is a commendation, praise for specific spiritual advance on the part of the con, uh, congregation. There is a condemnation, which is a warning about some spiritual flaw. There is a correction. They are challenged to correct this. It's, it's not that they have failed so that they cannot recover, but the point is that no matter how much you fail or how much a congregation may fail, if you're still alive and still on the planet, then God has a plan for your life. This is seen in at the end of this particular epistle because uh, Christ says, or else... Repent, he says, that's the call to change, to correction. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless 
you repent. So the challenge is to change and apply the word or else that's the end of your congregation. There's a warning of judgment there. But the implication is if you're still alive, still meeting, still uh, operational, then there's a chance to recover. The same is true in your spiritual life. You can't sin a sin that is too great for the grace of God. It's not a license to sin. That is, that it gives you the liberty to recover. That is a promise of God's grace that no matter how bad we may blow it, and we will blow it, sometimes terribly, that God's grace always has covered that sin. So there is a correction. There is a call to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is a mandate. Let him hear is a third person Mandate. We don't have third-person imperatives in English, but there are third-person imperatives in in uh, Greek and in Hebrew, and that is a mandate. We are commanded to listen to the instruction of these epistles. And then each one closes with a challenge, a personal promise to the one who overcomes. And the overcomer is not a every believer. But the overcomer is the, a reference to the believer who advances to spiritual maturity and applies the uh, ten stress busters, the spiritual skills, and continues to press on in application to the day of death, to the day that they are absent from the body face to face with the Lord. Not that they can lose their salvation, but that they can uh, fail to achieve all that God has intended for them, and they may indeed forfeit certain rewards or privileges in heaven by failing to overcome. Now, the concept of overcoming is directly related to a, to a spiritual life dynamic that is emphasized not only here in these epistles, but also in many other epistles of the New Testament. And that is this one Greek word, hupa, uh, hupomenes, or hupomene. H-U-P-O, uh, it should be an E, M-E-N-E. Hupomene. And hupomene is generally translated endurance, Sometimes it is translated perseverance. And the idea is to remain, for this second part of the word mene is from the Greek word meaning to abide or to remain. And hupa is a preposition uh, as a prefix which means under. And it has the idea of staying under a set of circumstances, adversity, difficulties, and continuing to apply the Word of God. So this is on, the emphasis here is on long-term obedience. And this becomes a, a major theme in this first epistle. So let's start breaking it down. We won't get through it today. You'll have to wait about six weeks before we get to the rest of it, but... There will be a part two. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, this is the commission, it's the opening address. It addresses this angel, not a human messenger as we've seen, not a pastor as we've seen, 
But consistent with the use of the word angelos in Revelation, this is an angel. This is an angel that, as, as we've seen in the past, these angels are related to the outworking of God's judgment and justice on the planet in and, and to the human race. And so it is not that the angel is being critiqued, but this angel is standing as a witness to the operational integrity and justice of God among in, in each of these congregations. And so he's given a scorecard, as it were. Now, the whole book is being sent to each and every one of these congregations, as stated in Revelation 1, uh, 7, and 8, that they are told, John was told to write these things in a book and send it to the seven churches. That is, write the whole thing. So that goes to each church, but each individual uh, critique sheet or checklist is given to the angelic witness that's functioning as part of the courtroom, uh, sort of a courtroom stenographer in the heavenly trial of Satan. So the angel of the church, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? And last time we studied about Ephesus, that this was a major city, the largest commercial center in Asia Minor. It was a well-known seaport and had been a seaport for over 500 years, even though they had problems with the river silting it in and they had to dredge it. Eventually it silted in and now the Mediterranean is some uh, six to ten miles away as the water line has receded and it's silted in. And when we were over there this summer, the guy told us that the reason the Mediterranean had receded was due to global warming. Glad you all thought about that. You know, global warming would produce a rise in the water, not a diminishing of the water level. So you blame everything on global warming. Uh, see, when you have a false construct, it manages to uh, uh, spread its popularity among all the uneducated and unlearned. So, uh, this was a church of Ephesus. It was dominated by paganism when Paul came, the worship of Diana, plus there were temples to many others in the Greek pantheon. But by this time, there's been a healthy church in Ephesus for some 40 years or more. And it has been pastored by the Apostle Paul himself, Timothy, and now the Apostle John. And not only is there a pastor, and not only have these three pastored, but there are others, because in a city with a population of 250 to 300,000, it's a large city, 40 years of the gospel, one would not believe that there was only one church, one congregation. There were many congregations. But this is addressed to the church, that is, the collective church in Ephesus. The entirety of the Christian community in Ephesus is characterized by these attributes, not just the individual contributions. So we're told these things, that is, what is to follow. These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is referred to in the first chapter as the one who has in his right hand seven stars. It's a different word there, simply referring to having. Here it's the word krato, indicating power or authority over the angels. Notice the stars, which are defined in verse 20 of chapter 1 of the angels, are distinct 
They are separate from the lampstands. If this was the pastor, he would be part of that uh, lampstand configuration, but they are uh, viewed as being quite distinct. He holds the seven stars in his right hand, and then he is walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is what John referred to at first in verse 12, where he says, I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So this is a reference to his movement in judgment, and this is referenced at the very beginning of the first letter because this is the idea flowing through these epistles, is that he is evaluating, as the priest judge, he is evaluating the spiritual character of each congregation. Now, as we go through this, you need to be thinking in terms of, how does this apply to me? This is like a checklist. Where am I on this checklist? If I were to evaluate my life according to these attributes, what would I get? Give yourself a check, plus or minus. You don't have to announce it. You don't have to write it down. But do a little self-check here as we go through these chapters. He begins by saying, I know your works. And this is the first line. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And I have chosen to use the New King James in the English here. And it goes on to say, And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars. Now, every one of these epistles begins with this phrase, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works. Every one of them. And the word works just means your production. Some of the production in a believer's life is divine good. It's done through the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. And you produce that which has eternal value. But on the other hand, we also produce human good, that which is just simple human morality. It's a product of our sin nature, and it has no eternal value. It's just wood, hay, and straw. It's dead works, the Bible says. I know your works. So now we're going to get an evaluation. That's simply a summary statement, and we could translate it, I know your production, Preston City Bible Church. What's your production? Okay, not in terms of Christian service. Notice, I want to really want you to pay attention to this. We're going to go through these seven letters to these seven churches, and he never once says, I know how many of you there are. I know your growth. You started off with five members, and now you have 500 members. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't talk about how many people they led to the Lord. He never says, well, I know what you've done, but you... You only witness to five people this week instead of 50 people this week. See, this is the kind of superficial, supercilious uh, nonsense you find in most churches. They confuse Christian service with spiritual production. And spiritual production has to come first before you have real, serious Christian service. Christian service, that is... Witnessing, giving, teaching in Sunday school, uh, doing physical labor around the church, helping out with the uh, sound system, the uh, media ministry, all of these kinds of things are just different aspects of Christian service. But you can do that whether you're in fellowship or out of fellowship. You can sit up in the sound booth and flip the switch and turn on the sound. You can uh, pass out communion. You can play the piano. 
You can lead the singing. You can preach a message. You can do just about anything and be out of fellowship and as carnal as you can possibly be. And you've got Christian service. You can witness to hundreds of people and be out of fellowship. People do it all the time. But it doesn't do anything spiritually. See, the issue is you have to walk by the Spirit first. It is that consistent walk by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, when you're in fellowship. And as a result of that, when you when you pray, when you uh, play the piano, when you teach in prep school, when you mow the grass, when you paint the building, when you run the media ministry, when you do all of those things, when you're in fellowship, that counts for eternal value. That is spiritual production that has eternal value. But it's not what you're doing in terms of Christian service that matters. It's what you're doing in terms of your spiritual life that's the issue. And that's the focus in these epistles, is what are you doing in your spiritual life? And what is the church doing? So he begins with this summary statement, I know your production. And if I were to punctuate this, I would start each of these with that sentence, I know your works, colon. And now we're going to get an evaluation of that production. I know your works, colon. And then the second category is your labor, followed by your patience. And then third, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And then we get an example of what they, what he means by not abiding uh, or bearing with those who are evil. And the first word that's translated works is the word ergon, the Greek word ergon, which is simply the word, the generic term for work or production. And in fact, we're going to be evaluated according to our works at the judgment seat of Christ. So this ties these evaluation statements to what will take place at the judgment seat of Christ. So if you want to have some sort of preview of coming attractions, how you, you all, y'all, at Preston City Bible Church will be evaluated as a congregation, and how you, singular, as a believer, will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, then pay attention. Because what we'll see in the coming chapters is a list of about 20 to 25 different character qualities or attributes that's the, that are the basis for evaluation. Notice these are character qualities. This has to do with your spiritual integrity, the virtue in your spiritual life as a result of your spiritual growth and its combined benefit in the, in the local church. So he knows our work. Second, he says, I know your labor. I know your labor. The New American Standard translates it toil. I prefer the King James translation because toil is a negative concept. And remember when we studied the doctrine of labor in Genesis, we pointed out that God is first pictured in Genesis 1 as a laborer, as a craftsman, as he is creating and shaping the universe and the planet and mankind. But it is not toilsome. And man is originally given responsibilities and labor. We think of labor with a certain negative connotation to it. And what I'm pointing out is that That's only because we live in this post-fall environment. And man was given the responsibility to watch over and guard 
the Garden of Eden. He was to keep it. He was to name all the animals and classify all the animals. So there were responsibilities involved. There was labor involved before the fall, but it wasn't laborious. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't the kind of thing that you would wake up in the morning and Adam would would turn over and say to Eve, Oh, my aching back. You know, that was hard work in the garden yesterday. I think I'm going to sleep in a couple of more days. Maybe I'll just watch television for a while and uh, avoid some of that labor. Maybe I'll put it off until tomorrow, actually. We have a lot of time here. There's no hurry. Nobody's put us on a schedule. See, it wasn't laborious. There were no negative consequences. The negative consequences came in Genesis 3 as a result of sin. And as a consequence of sin, the earth is cursed, and now the ground will produce thorns and thistles, and the man will earn his living by the what? Sweat of his brow. So that in Genesis chapter 3, we find out that labor becomes toil. It's difficult. It's hard. And that's that toilsomeness of labor is reversed by, by living your spiritual life. So that labor becomes joyful again. Just as it, under the curse, and when men and women are out of fellowship, there is a war between the sexes. Remember our study in Genesis 3, that the woman now has a desire to usurp the authority of her husband. The word teshuka, their translated desire, isn't a desire for... You know, a sexual desire for the man. There's a lot of conceited men who like to translate it that way, but it doesn't stand up to uh, Hebrew word usage. It is a desire to gain control over and to dominate. So as a result of the fall, the woman wants to run, run the house, wear the pants in the family, and the man in turn wants to dominate the woman. So there's this war. But see, this gets reversed in the corporate witness of Christian marriage, in Ephesians chapter 5, the husband is to, to what? Love the wife as Christ loved the church, not to be a domineering tyrant, and the wife is to submit to the husband as she would submit to the Lord. So you see the toilsomeness that enters into marriage because of the curse is reversed in the process of sanctification as two believers are living together in fellowship, walking by the Spirit and applying doctrine, then that authority conflict that is inherent to the sin nature and will crop up time to time, especially those of you who've been married, you know that. It crops up here and there, and uh, uh, more, more for some, less for others. But it's always there. But if you're a believer, that can be overcome. And it is handled through spiritual growth, application of doctrine, the filling of the Holy Spirit. We see the same thing here. That's why I think labor is a better translation. Because in the spiritual life, we are laboring. We have work to do. The Lord referred to one aspect when he says the uh, fields are white unto harvest. That we need to pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers. We need evangelists, we need missionaries, we need Sunday school teachers, you need people who work with uh, the tape ministry, the media ministry, you need people to just come and clean the, house, uh, the, the church, you need people to cut the grass, you need people who will 
take care of the things that nobody ever hears about, the unsung, unmentioned heroes. And there's so many of them that, that make things work around the church here at Preston City Bible Church who do so many things that go unnoticed, and yet we come to church every week and it's been dusted and cleaned. Somebody's cleaned it. Uh, we have running water on occasion. The, in, the, the winter, the, in the winter, the heater works. Uh, even less frequently, and in the summer, the air conditioner usually works when the electricity's on. Remember that first year I was here, and the electricity went out like three times the first three months on a Sunday morning, nine fifteen, no power. Talk about the angelic conflict. They, but we have people who take care of all of these details, and we've had people uh, taking care of the media ministry, and and we got uh, Bryce and. Uh, Jim and uh, Tony and others and just do a tremendous job. And none of that would be done. But nobody ever really always sees the work that they're doing. And Jeff and Lori sending out tapes every week. But these are the things that keep the whole machinery going. This is the labor and everybody's responsible. You know, if you just come to church and your view of church is, well, that's where I go to get my spiritual food. And I'm going to go and I'm going to sit and I'm going to write notes and I'm going to take in the word and then I'm going to go home and I may say hello to three or four people. Then you are missing out on your role within the body of Christ. You've been gifted in some way in a spiritual gift for ministry to the body of Christ. Every one of you. Even if you're an evangelist, some people think the evangelist is primarily has a gift to evangelize, but in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, it says that these gifts were given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And the gift of evangelism wasn't given simply to enable that individual to witness more effectively to unbelievers, but for that evangelist to teach everybody else in the body of Christ how to evangelize more effectively. So everybody's job, let's say you have the gift of service. Well, that's that's great if you use that in relationship to your family or in relationship to place of work, but that's supposed to operate within the framework of the local congregation. That's why it was given to you, to minister to other members of the body of Christ. So there is labor. Now, when you're out of fellowship and you're operating on arrogance and self-centeredness, then it becomes toil. That must be the idea of the translator from the New American Standard. Now, Christian service, when you are in fellowship, you're doing it for the Lord. You're not doing it for me. You're not doing it for the deacons. You're not doing it for the congregation. You're doing it to serve the Lord because the Lord is the one who saved you and the one who gave you these spiritual gifts through God the Holy Spirit. So John says, first of all, or Jesus is the one who's speaking, and he says, first of all, I know your production. First of all, your your labor, that those in the Ephesian church were hard workers. They were involved in, in all the different dimensions of the church life, whether that involved uh, providing finances to the widows, taking care of the poor, whether that involved... Uh, supporting the local church uh, uh, ministers, and there were different pastors and missionaries that came through Ephesus. There wasn't always just one person who taught the Word. You never heard Paul say, well, I'm leaving now. You can't listen to anybody else. Uh, no, Timothy came along, and 
Titus came along. He wasn't the pastor, but he came through the area. Um, John was there, and there were many others whose names we don't know. But they were all part of the body of Christ, and the Ephesian church was hospitable. That's part of our ministry. And um, you're going to have a great opportunity in the coming weeks to demonstrate some of that hospitality because the deacons have set up some good speakers who will come in on a rotational basis on Sunday morning. Uh, Dan Ingram, whom you know very well. Uh, Charlie Clough, whom you know very well. Uh, Dr. Tom Edgar, who's Greek professor, I've known him for uh, several years down at Capital Bible Seminary. He was one of Dan's uh, professors, and and he's just uh, just a wonderful uh, man, wonderful individual. Has he's got a wonderful wife, and both have years of service down there at at Capital Seminary. And uh, Larry Chapel as well to give you as a congregation an opportunity to express your appreciation and hospitality towards these men. That's all part of the labor of the Christian life. It's part of that service. And when it's done in fellowship, it's a very positive, beneficial thing. So they're evaluated on the basis of their labor, their work in Christian service which is an outgrowth of their spiritual life. Next, they're evaluated on their, well, there's that word we used earlier. I did misspell it earlier. Had it right the first time. Hupomone, H-E-P-O-M-O-N-E, hupomone. Patience is what it's translated in the New King James, your patience. The New American Standard uh, translated it, Perseverance. Personally, I prefer endurance. Uh, perseverance is good as well, but it has that idea of hanging in there, continuing to apply. Notice how it comes after labor. Because, see, after a while of performing some thankless job at the local church where you're down there once a week, perhaps on your hands and knees scrubbing the floor, not that anybody does that, but... That was true for many, many years in many, many churches, and maybe no one knew who actually did that. And after a while, you get tired. You get tired of teaching Sunday. I've been teaching those three- to five-year-olds now for 28 years. I'm tired of it. Well, it's time for a little hoopamone, a little endurance, a little perseverance. See, that's why perseverance follows labor because we get involved in Christian service and after a while we get tired, we get bored. We, why doesn't somebody else come along and carry the load? And so that, that emphasis is, and the Christian life is not just starting well, not just doing it for a while. You're not just earning a merit badge. I taught Sunday school for five years and now I'm going to move on to something else. The emphasis on the Christian life is on continuing well and ending well in whatever area of service that may be. And I don't mean that it's wrong to, to take a break at times. I don't, I'm not implying that. I'm not saying that, that once you lock into um, teaching those two- to three-year-olds that that's your ministry till you're 95. No, I'm not saying that. But sometimes in a local church, there are just limited options. There's only a few of us. And that means that, that we may get locked into certain jobs that we have to do for a long time, and we should serve the Lord in doing that. That's our attitude. So the Ephesian church is evaluated, and we will be evaluated on our labor 
and endurance, not patience. We think of patience as the opposite of being angry or short-tempered or impatience, and that's really the Greek word makrothumia, which is a compound word from thumos meaning anger and macro meaning long. So you're long on anger. It takes you a long time to get upset or angry. It's not patience as the, as the New King James translates it. It's endurance. And endurance is a key virtue in spiritual growth. Hold your place here and turn back just a, a few chapters in your Bible to the book of James. If you hit Hebrews, you went too far. And we're talking about this also in our class on Wednesday night, and we'll be wrapping up some things on adversity and stress and testing on Wednesday night with Abraham. Verse 2, My brethren, James writes, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When you fall into various trials. And the word that he uses for trial here is this word, perasmos. P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S. And this has the idea of testing something to determine its character or its value. To test something to determine its character or its value. Here it has the idea of an objective test. It's objective in the sense that it comes from outside. There's, this word is also used and is translated to refer to the subjective dimension of testing, which is, which is what we call temptation. This is something people have a hard time with, that you can be tempted, you can be tested without being tempted. So I just went down during the break, and even though I try to stay off of sugar, I just had a nice piece of that um, uh, carrot cake when I was down there, and I love carrot cake. So I was tested and tempted. There was the external offer, and there was that internal attraction. But I'm rather, my appetite is rather satiated right now, and so if you came in and offered me another piece of carrot cake, that would be an external test, I would not be, I would not succumb, and I would say, no, that's fine, give it to somebody else. So that's the, there would be no internal draw. Just because there's no internal attraction doesn't mean there's no test. See, Jesus Christ was tested, perasmos, in all points as we are, yet without sin. See, that's that same idea of a test to demonstrate or prove the character of something. So when it's, some translations translate that he was tempted in all points as we are, but the word tempt for most of us has that idea of the internal attraction to something. And this is talking about that external test, and it's a word we'll find in this first epistle to the, to the Ephesians. So James writes, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into or encounter various poikilos, that is multiplicity, of test, perasmos. Then we have a, an adverbial causal participle because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Not patience, which is what the New King James says, but endurance. So testing produces endurance. Can you have endurance without testing? No. You have to have testing. 
Testing produces endurance, and then what happens with endurance? But let endurance then have its perfect work. And the idea there is the Greek word teleos, which means completing work. It is taking you someplace. The reason God allows these tests in our lives is because it takes us from where we are spiritually to where we need to be spiritually. It gives us an opportunity to apply doctrine. And when we consistently apply doctrine... Yesterday, today, tomorrow, next week, next year, year after next, next decade, when we're in our 40s, our 50s, our 60s, our 70s, our 80s, yes, Dave, and in our 90s. Get ready. That's endurance. But when we get, I've seen people get into their 60s and 70s and say, well, my kids are grown. You know, my wife's dead. It doesn't matter. I'll just live with some woman. I had to. I had a man in my church that one time came up to me and he said, I can't understand it. My father was a committed believer. He was always a leader in the local church. And now he's living with some woman, 70 years old. Well, I did all that when I was younger. I don't need to do it anymore. No endurance. And it's amazing. Every decade, especially you younger people, every decade you're going to hit different challenges to your Christian life. There'll be different challenges. And when you get older, the idea is have you managed to pass through that series of tests, the ones you get hit with in your forties and in your fifties and in your sixties and then the the ones you hit in your golden years. You know, they call them golden years because you gotta gotta have a lot of gold to make it through. So you have to have that that endurance. And that has its completing result, that you may be complete and sufficient. That's the goal. A mature believer, it's doing it when you don't want to do it. It's coming to Bible class when you're tired. It's coming to Bible class and, and staying awake when it's a little too hot in here. It's coming to Bible class when you, you know, well... Uh, the pastor just really hadn't been on target lately, or this pastor is not as good as another pastor I know. But and it's, but you're going to learn. God the Holy Spirit is going to take the truth and He's going to teach you. And when you go through the next few months and you have different speakers, they're going to say, well, I don't know that guy. I'll just sleep late this morning and be a bedside Baptist. Well, that's not going to work. You know, you're going to have to get up and, and endure, come to class, and you're going to learn some things. And you might hear some things from one or two of these speakers, who knows who comes in, that you say, well, that's not what Pastor Dean taught. Oh, then you can be like the Bereans and go home and search the Scriptures and see who's right. Okay? And if somebody's, somebody comes in and teaches something you know is wrong, don't blast them. You know, that's the way it is. Part of the thing that hap- thing one of the dynamics in looking for a pastor is it gives you the opportunity to not only hear that which you'll like, but hear some things that you're going to say, you know, I don't want that in a pastor. It's sort of like when you were dating. You know, there were some men or women, girls or guys that you went out with, and you knew you weren't going to marry them, but they might have been a little fun for the time being. You know, you go out to dinner, have a good time, and that was it. There were others you went out with. You thought, well, maybe there's something of value here. And after a while, you realize, no, there really isn't. You you learned from the negative as much as from the positive. And you didn't simply go out on a date with those you thought were uh, marriageable candidates. You went out with a few. You knew they weren't marriageable candidates. And you learned maybe a little bit more about why they weren't. 
uh, good candidates for marriage. So it's a learning process. That's And endurance is the key to hanging in there. Now, endurance is used one other key place. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, Paul begins to shift from justification to reconciliation. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, which is a non-emotional, non-experiential reality. You know something. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, there's a tremendous amount there. If I were teaching that passage, we'd be here three weeks. We have been justified. We have peace. So when your life is in turmoil, remember you have peace with God. The issue of salvation is completed and resolved. And because of that, we stand in grace, and we can rejoice in hope, confident expectation. We can have present reality peace and joy because we know where we're headed. We can live today in light of eternity. And not only that, Paul says, beyond even that, we rejoice in the hope, that is the confident expectation looking forward to, the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. We glory in tribulations. We boast in tribulations. When you hit that adversity, it's, boy, this is great. Isn't it fun? i got to remember that this week when the movers come. <laughs> glory in tribulation because we know. There's that adverbial causal participle again, just like we had over in James. Because you know something. Not because you emote. Not because you have wonderful praise songs on Sunday morning that make you feel good have that ooey-gooey worship experience, but because you know that tribulation produces perseverance. Now, that's not exactly the kind of thing that's going to warm the cockles of your heart. But tribulation, that is adversity, produces endurance. You can't get it any other way. If endurance is the key to growth, adversity has to precede endurance. Just It's reality. Endurance... Tribulation produces perseverance. That's that word hupomones again. Produces endurance and endurance character. How do you get character? By going through trials and responding to the trials the right way. See, you are the product of your decisions. And if you don't make the right decisions when you're in the midst of those adversities, then it doesn't produce the right kind of character. It produces the wrong kind of character, an unstable character, a flip-floppy character. You have to endure consistent obedience in the same direction, and that produces a character. And character, hope. Hope is that confident expectation related to our eternity. So John, I mean, so Jesus Christ through John is evaluating the Ephesians, and he says, I know your works, that is, your labor, the hard work in Christian service, because you're walking by the Spirit, and your endurance. 
And third, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And the word there for bearing those who are evil is the word bastadzo. Bastadzo. And bastadzo means to be able to bear up under especially trying or oppressive circumstances. And here it has that idea that you can't really put up with something. And they don't want to put up with or tolerate false teachers. See, here's a, that, that, and that's really how bastadzo ought to be understood here. How intolerant. See, you, you know, we're gonna, this is hate speech here according to the way some people look at, look at things today. See, they were, they were praised by God because they wouldn't tolerate those who are evil. They wouldn't put up with it. They removed them from the congregation. They would not tolerate those who are evil. And we see the example of this in the next phrase. They tested, and that's the word perosmos. They tested, that is, they, they put those who claimed to be apostles through a test to see if they really were apostles. And they, they tested those who claimed to be apostles, and by this time there were numerous people who were going around making such a claim, and they were false apostles. And they are not, and they discovered them liars. So that was part of what the congregation did, was to evaluate these these authority claims. Today we would say that you would evaluate a pastor-teacher to find out if he really has sound doctrine or not, and that's part of what a church does when they go through the process of looking for a pastor. But these are the arenas of condemn—I mean, of commendation for the Ephesian church. And what's their reason? See, this is going to be repeated in the next verse. And you have persevered, hupomanes, you've endured, you've had ongoing obedience in the same direction. And you have patience, bastadzo. See, they don't tolerate evil, but they do have toleration for one another. See, we all fail at times. We're all sinners. We're still carnal. So there's a level of tolerance for other believers. But there's not tolerance for evil. And he says, you do this for my name's sake, because of who I am. See, that's our motivation. It's not the pastor, it's not people in the church, it's not the deacons, it's not anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. They've endured and they, they have endured and they have uh, been tolerant and they have borne up and put up with the difficulties in life because of who Jesus Christ is. And they have not become weary. They did not give up when things got tough. They pu- pushed on to the high ground of spiritual maturity. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the truths that are here. Father, we pray that we might be challenged by the importance of endurance and perseverance in our own lives, but above all things, that we not forget what it's all about, that there is to be at the very core a love for you and a love for doctrine. This is our priority, have that relationship with you. Where the Ephesians failed, for they left their first love. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit you can determine that you have eternal life. If you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, at that instant, you have eternal life. At the instant that you believe 
God the Father in his omniscience knows what you believed, and he imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are regenerate, you receive a new human spirit, and you receive God's very own eternal life. And this can never, ever be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.